0: If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning we have only one verse. The scripture reading a moment ago was rather long. The sermon scripture reading will be rather short to balance that out a bit. Last week we looked at a parable of Jesus, a very uh, commonly known parable, to see what the Bible calls justification. Justification by faith, as we say. And Today, we're going to take a look at the same truth, justification, once again, but from a a slightly different perspective. We're going to look from the the, the perspective of the Apostle Paul this morning, and I know that there are lots of places in Paul's letters where we could go to look at justification as a a topic, a theological doctrine. There are lots of places we could go, but we're going to look here in 2 Corinthians 5.21, because here, in this particular verse, we see... Very clearly, the two sides of justification. So, I'm going to read that verse, but a few words before and after for the sake of context. I'll actually start in the middle of verse 20. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians and to us as well. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes and grant to us Your Spirit so that we can recognize the beauty and the power of Your good news in Jesus and that we might believe, we pray, in His name and for His glory. Amen. You may be seated. In 1999, I graduated from Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And just about two years before that, Mary had, either wisely or unwisely, depending on how you see it, agreed to hitch her wagon to my rising star. (laughs) And as I graduated from seminary, I had the opportunity that I went to seminary to get. I had a rising star. I had the opportunity to go and work with Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, which is, as many of you know, our denomination's campus ministry. And I had been given this opportunity to go and, and interview for a, a possibly a, a job with RUF in ministry on a campus. And they were going to pay me less than half of what I had made four years before as an engineer. So why would I want a job like this? But I did. I did want this job. And I went down to Georgia to interview. Um, and. Sat in a, a little library room in a church, an old Presbyterian church there in Macon, Georgia, with the campus ministry committee of that presbytery. And they interviewed me. They talked about, you know, what, why do you want to work with RUF and tell us about your background and what would you do with college students and various things like that. And then after that interview, they sent me out in the hallway so they could kind of talk for a little bit. And after a bit, one of the men from that committee came out in the hallway and he said to me, I, I thought, now I'm going to know what the deal is. Do I, do I get the job or not? He said, Colin, I got one more question for you. I didn't ask this in there, but I'm just I'm dying to know. What is your life verse? Now, I didn't grow up in a context or had not really been in Christian sorts of contexts where that term was used. I didn't I didn't really know what he was talking about, but, but by the context of it and by the term, your, what is your life verse, I could kind of figure out pretty quickly what he meant. And, um, but I didn't really have one, and so like any good seminary graduate who really wants this particular job, I made one up. <laughs> so I couldn't say John 3.16, which would be kind of the obvious, you know, one off the cuff, but that would be too obvious, you know, I, that's, no, you know that's not your life verse you got to do better than that you went to seminary so i did better than that and i said you know if if i have a life verse i guess i would say it's second corinthians 5:21 god made jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god that's a good one i mean if you're going to have a life verse that's a good one And I knew it, and I was glad. I came up with a good one, and and he liked that. You know, I said, if that's not true, if that verse is not true, then let's all just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and there's really no other hope. If that verse is not true, then let's all just get as physically comfortable with life as we can and just ride out the rest of the ride because we don't know where it's going. If that verse is not true, then let me just rewind seminary and go back to being an engineer as I was before because why would I want this job that's going to pay me half of what I made before if that verse is not true and I got the job? And that man is a good friend to this day. This truth is absolutely central. It is, it is totally, absolutely central to the truth of the Christian life. And it's central in all of Scripture. I mean, from Job to Revelation, from Romans to James, from Genesis to, to the Gospel of Luke, this truth is absolutely central to the scriptural narrative of what God has given us, revealed in His Word. It is justification, a critical high point of the narrative of all of history. Now, it is a critical high point. It is not the crescendo. It is not the high point of all of history. God's glory is that. But justification is a central and non-negotiable part of how God makes His glory known to all of His creation. And our understanding of it, our apprehension of justification, shapes and reconfigures every interaction that we have with God and with each other, for that matter, it's that central, it's that crucial to us. I have a good friend who has a kind of a common answer to, to pretty much any of life's problems that someone poses to him that, that they're looking for counseling for. His answer is, you don't understand your justification. So someone will come to him and say, I failed a class in college and now my parents don't trust me, they don't trust my judgment, and, and what am I going to do? And he says, you don't understand your justification. Somebody comes to him and says, my girlfriend broke up with me and I'm distressed. I can't sleep at night. And he says, you don't understand your justification. Somebody comes to him and says, the dog messed on the floor. It stinks and it's stained and the in-laws are coming over an hour from now. What am I going to do to cut? You don't understand your justification. It, It may be kind of an oversimplification, but there's some great truth to his answer there. Here in this verse, there are two things that you have to see. The first one is one that you Christians know and you mostly believe. If you're not a Christian, you may not believe this, although perhaps you've heard it. So if you live in Dallas for more than a week, you've heard this. But you Christians, you know this and you mostly believe it. The second one, however, you may have heard, but you struggle to believe it, even if you want to, and... The fact of the matter is that deep down inside, you wish that the second one were not true because it eliminates some opportunity that you really kind of want for yourself. These are the two things. Unless you think that I'm oversimplifying, to say there are two things to it, I'm going to quote from John Calvin, who causes me to kind of struggle because this quote is from his book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is like this thick, and it's a, a... a a, a lasting theology of the Christian faith, which we refer to. It's fantastic. And he wrote it and finished writing it by the time he was much younger than I am now, and I've not written anything. And so it makes me kind of struggle to understand my justification as a pastor, (laughs) to be honest with you. But Calvin wrote this. He said, Justification is the acceptance with which God receives us into His favor as if we were righteous. And this justification consists in two things the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. The two sides of justification. This is what theologians refer to as double imputation. Imputation is that kind of fancy word we talked about last week a bit that means crediting. To impute means to credit something. It doesn't mean to make it real about who you are and your identity, but it means to credit you with it, kind of like a credit card. Double imputation. That is, the crediting goes both ways in this transaction of justification. If you refuse one of them, then the other one is irrelevant to you. In other words, it's double or it's nothing. It sounds kind of like a game show, but it's much more serious than that. It's double or it's nothing. If you refuse one, the other one just doesn't even matter to you anymore. And the first one is this. The freedom that Jesus has allowed for you. The gospel grants freedom, of course, you know. You you recognize that, I hope. And Paul puts it this way. He says, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, Christ died to free us. From the guilt of our sin, this is the one that we know, that we we recognize, we we kind of define Christianity with it. If somebody comes to you and says, "What does it mean to be a Christian?" What's the first thing you're going to say? Christ died for my sins, right? And and that's good. That's important. This is the passive obedience of Christ. Again, as theologians put their terms on things, the passive obedience of Christ. He allowed his blood to be shed. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. He didn't have to, as the, the scoffers and the mockers stood there at the foot of the cross and said, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you call down to these legions of angels and have them free you from this cross and get you down from there? Oh, he could have done that, but he didn't. He, he allowed, in a passive sense, he allowed for this to be done. He allowed for his blood to be shed. And this, the, the biblical theme of the glory of God pulses with this passive obedience, We read Genesis 3 moments ago, Brian did, in the Scripture reading. And and just as a little aside to you, to to kind of note something in the the liturgy that you may have noticed in past weeks, we're not calling that the Lectio Continua right now. Lectio Continua means continuous reading, and that's just not what we're doing with it right now. Continuous reading would be reading through one book of the Bible continuously from beginning to end, and that's a good practice in, in worship. Right now, And we may do that again at different points in seasons in the future. But right now, it, I prefer to use that Scripture reading as a, a different element of Scripture to highlight what the sermon and to clarify what the sermon is about. And so that's why it's called Old Testament reading today. That's an aside. But Genesis 3, Brian read that story that you, you maybe are familiar with of, of the fall of Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God, their eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the consequences that fell out from that. And the last verse that Brian read is, in a sense, the Old Testament version of Second Corinthians 5.21. What was the last verse? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. God made garments of skin for them. The implication is that something died. You don't get skin without something dying to give it up. Something died. Death was required. If God is anything, He's just. He has to be. That's part of His character. And our sense of right and wrong and justice, even, we all have this innate sense of it because we're made in the image of God. And that suggests, of course, it's an implication that God is there and God is just. God can't ignore treason. But in Genesis 3, what was their trees and what was their sin? We kind of wonder. We look back and, and the Bible doesn't t- tell us exactly clearly what it was. They ate fruit from a tree. What does that mean? Well, you know, we, we may not know all of what that means, but, but the bigger question is, why does it even matter to me? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Why, why would God blame me for something that a man did thousands of years ago? What does that have to do with me? It's not fair. In fact, that kind of implies the statement that if I were there, you know, I would have done better than Adam. I wouldn't have eaten from that fruit. I would have known better. Well, maybe, maybe not. Probably not, I would suggest. But the point is this. Here's another theologian's term that should be very important to you. Federal theology. Okay, what God did is provided a representative for us. Now, as Americans, we should get this right? I mean, as much as the Americanization of Christianity has kind of done harm to the church in so many different ways, we should at least get this, that God provided a representative to speak on our behalf. That's who Adam was. He was a representative. And in this case, it worked to our detriment. In the future, it would work to our glory, wouldn't it? But in this case, in God's providence, they chose to sin and as it were, you are what you eat, and so they and all after them became sin. We inherited it. It's, it's who we are. We walk in it. We can't escape it. And if you don't believe that you're a sinner, then Christianity is really of no use to you. You know? And that's part of what this verse in 2 Corinthians 5 is for us to see. Another passage of Scripture that helps us to see it is in Luke chapter 7. Jesus uh, is, is in a situation where Luke tells us he's invited to a Pharisee's house. Simon is his name. He's invited there for dinner. And Jesus goes to this Pharisee's house for dinner. And these men are seated around, well, not seated, they're leaning against the table, uh, reclined against the table as they did, around this table with their feet extended outwards. And, and a woman comes who doesn't belong at the party. She kind of crashes the party. And she can do that because of, kind of the way that, that things were set up. You didn't have a, a dining room that was walled off and people couldn't see in. It was kind of a public thing, and, and people could come and watch the rich people eat. And that's kind of what was happening. And this woman came, and, and she was uh, a woman of the night, some would, would say. You know, someone who, who uh, was, uh, did not belong with a religious teacher, we might consider. And this sinful woman, as Luke calls her, came and began to anoint Jesus' feet, with perfume, and and kiss his feet, and wipe his feet with her hair. And Simon, the Pharisee, begins to wonder. If he only knew who this woman was, he would not let her do this to his feet. He would not let her touch him. And Jesus, of course, being the reader of minds, knows what he's thinking, and he says to Simon, Simon, let me tell you something. Two men owed a debt. One was a little, one was a lot. Neither one could repay, and so their debts were forgiven to them. Now, which of these men do you think will be most grateful? And Simon said, well, of course, the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus says, well, yes, that's exactly right, Simon. Thank you. You've answered correctly. He says, when I got here, you gave me no water to wash my feet, but this woman's been washing my feet with her tears. When I came here, you gave me no kiss to welcome me, but this woman has been kissing my feet since she came. When, you got, when I got here, Simon, you gave me no oil to anoint my head, but this woman has been anointing my feet with perfume. In other words, Simon, the one who has been forgiven much loves much, he says. This woman knows she's a sinner. She knows her identity. Your sin, you have to recognize, as did this woman, is not so much what you do. But it's who you are. It's it's your identity. It's not something that you can just kind of stop and shed like an unneeded layer of clothing. It's who you are and you can't escape it. It is your identity apart from Christ. The gospel is that Jesus assumed that identity for you. In other words, he who had no sin became sin. He was made to be sin, Paul says. The credit of justification begins by going from you to God. You don't bring nothing to the transaction. You know, we, we sing the hymn in which we sing, I in how's it go? In in my my hands I nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And that's true. Nothing in my hands I bring, I, I bring no works to offer that have any value before God. And yet you do bring something. What do you bring? You bring yourself. And your identity is sin. You can't escape it. And so Paul wrote this, this verse to a church that was full of it. You know, the Corinthian church had all kinds of troubles. In his first letter that he wrote to them, he wrote about all the conflicts that were there. They had conflicts over preference of teacher. You know, some like Paul, some like Apollo, somebody like, like somebody else. And, and they're arguing over who's the better teacher. They have conflict over immoral actions among their uh, congregation and their families. They had conflict over civic disputes and reasons for marriage and eating certain foods or not eating foods. They had conflicts over how they came to the table together. And then in the second letter, which is what we have before us now, Paul wrote this one because he had changed his visiting plans to come back and see them. And some of them had raised doubts among each other about the reliability now of Paul and therefore of his gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter to them saying, I don't need to defend myself to you. For your own good and for your own weakness of heart, I'm going to explain to you, I changed my plans because of this, but I still hope to come and see you. But he says to them, in essence, Corinthians, you don't understand your justification. And I do. I don't need to defend myself to you. Listen, you are not forgiven unless fill in the blank. You're not forgiven except for fill in the blank. You're not forgiven in the event that you fill in the blank. You're not forgiven until you do this. No, none of that. You are forgiven because God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin. And that's all. But mostly you believe that, right? I mean, mostly you believe that, you know that. And, and again, that's kind of what you describe Christianity as when somebody might ask you about it. But the more difficult part is the second part. You don't believe that he lived for you. You believe that he died for you, but you don't believe day to day, that he lived for you. If Jesus died for your sins and then left you with a clean slate, then you may as well have nothing at all. I mean, you have to understand that this was one of the urgent priorities of the Protestant Reformation because at the time, the theology was implying to people that, oh, God will forgive you for your sins, be baptized, confess your sins, and be forgiven, and now you can start over. Now you can start fresh and try again. Well, you know, that kind of defines much of American evangelicalism, oddly enough, because it defines our hearts. It's just who we are. Okay, you can forgive me for my sins, but now let me do something. We want to do something. We want to have something to offer. And Paul says, no, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Do you know what that means? It means that if you take the first part but not the second You've received God's grace in vain. It is of no value to you. You take double or you take nothing. You have to pay attention to the so that part. In the middle of the sentence, there's a so that. Did you see it? You have to pay attention to the so that. So that what? So that you might have the confidence that Jesus has accomplished for you. The gospel grants you confidence. God made Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that... And now the next words that follow are the explosion that should totally reshape the way that you approach life. Every day. When my brother and I were teenagers, we would sometimes go from Dallas out to East Texas to visit my aunt and uncle, who had retired to a small cabin on a small private lake in East Texas. There were about a dozen cabins around the lake, people that had, had retired there, or weekends, you know, kind of activities that go out there. And we'd go and visit. One of our favorite things to do out there was to take my uncle's 22 rifle and go across to the other side of the lake to the trash dump. And we would set up target practice. We'd pull out all kinds of things from the trash dump, cans and bottles mostly, or whatever else might be there, and have target practice across the dump. About 30 or 40 feet away, we'd shoot and knock down the bottles or the cans. One time, we struck gold. We got there, and my brother went down into the trash pit to see what he could find, and and he came up with a television tube. Now, if you're younger than 20 years old, you don't know what a television tube is because you've only seen flat-screen TVs. But back when I was a kid, a teenager, televisions had a screen, but they also were like eight feet deep because they had this big glass tube inside, which was what made the television function. They weighed a 1,000 pounds. You can ask your parents all about that, kids, and they'll tell you, oh, my TV was this big, but it weighed a 1,000 pounds. And he came up with this glass television tube. The plastic casing was gone. It was just the glass television tube. And we set it up on the other side for target practice. Now, what we hadn't thought of or didn't have reason to know is that a television tube is a vacuum. Inside, there's nothing there's not even air it's been vacuumed out there's a vacuum inside of there that's part of how the television tube would work so we set that thing up on the other side and we thought this will be really cool and my brother took aim and 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 fired at that television tube across the the trash pit and as soon as the gun went pow the whole world went into slow motion i can still see it today My brother hit that thing right on, right in the middle. I I remember seeing the hole of the bullet form in the middle of that television tube. And then, as the air sucked into that vacuum of that thick glass tube, the glass is thick, cracks formed, and that thing exploded. We didn't know it was going to happen. We were 30 or 40 feet away, but we ducked under, you know, behind trees. And it seemed like for minutes thick glass was showering that thing exploded we had no idea this is justification god took one shot and he exploded everything about our 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 desire for works righteousness our sense of gaining something on our own god made jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that so that what so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ lived so that we might have what the holy God requires. Because of double imputation, because of the second side of justification, we have confidence in not our righteousness, but God's righteousness. This is the active obedience of Christ, that He actively lived and accomplished law-keeping for you and for me. In other words, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, he, what did he say there? As he kind of re-explained the Ten Commandments, the moral law to the people, you've heard it said, you shall not kill, but I say to you, if you even hate someone in your heart, then you're guilty. He, he, he re-explained the Ten Commandments there, and he said to them then, listen, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, no. I've come to fulfill them to the smallest letter of the law. And only God himself could do that. So what does it mean? Again, in Genesis 3, what do we read there? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And what? And he clothed them. He clothed them. Have you ever had that dream? You know where I'm going, don't you? Have you ever had that dream where, where, you know, you're deep in your sleep and you're dreaming and you're at school or you're walking through the mall or you're at work and suddenly you realize, I forgot to get dressed. I'm wearing no clothes. I mean, you've, you've had that dream, right? Why do we dream that? That's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not going to go to the office naked. but Why would I dream such a thing? You've dreamt that before. Haven't you? Why is that so disturbing to us? Or you know, kind of the modern version of that is on social media. John was mentioning earlier a, a Facebook page, which is just kind of a common means of communication nowadays. But but it's a great picture of this sort of thing. You know, if, if you're on face, if you're a Facebooker, some of you are not Facebookers because you're just scared nobody'll like me, right? And if you're a Facebooker, you, you post something, and kind of deep down, your fear is nobody's gonna like it. Right, and, and what does that mean? It means that you've just exposed yourself. You've, you've laid yourself out for the world to see and nobody paid any attention because you just don't even, you're not worth paying attention to. You don't understand your justification. You know, the, our, our shame is, is what this is all about. We, we all feel some sense of shame and exposure. We don't want to be known, but we do want to be known. God covered their shame. He clothed them. The gospel is that the innocent animals in this case, the innocent were stripped so that the guilty could be covered. The innocent were stripped so that the guilty could be covered. The gospel is not just that God forgives, but that God also then covers. And here's where you need to hear it, because what we say is, Jesus died for my sins. Hallelujah. And then the unspoken kind of follow-up to that is, Now I'm going to do my best to pay God back. Now I'm going to do my best to prove that I'm worth him having died for my sins. Now I'm going to show him how proud he can be of me, and I'm going to do the best that I can. No. In Luke chapter 10, again, to go back to a little story that that sort of illustrates this, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus visited the home of a woman named Martha and her sister Mary, two characters that were common in, in Jesus' interactions in his world and and jesus evidently is sitting down in the living room and teaching the disciples they're they're talking about the coming of the kingdom of god and and mary the younger sister sits down and listens meanwhile martha the older sister is busy doing the work of hospitality she's washing dishes making food pouring the iced tea or whatever the 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 thing was And she gets upset because her sister isn't helping. And she comes in and she says to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care that Mary is just sitting here not helping me? I have all this work to do. I'm showing how important I am to this meeting here. Will you tell my sister to help? And Jesus answers her gently but firmly. And what does he say to her bitter complaint? He says, Martha, you're worried and you're upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen well, and it won't be taken from her what she has chosen here. Look, why is it that in my home, in our home, it's always 11 p.m.? You know, on a weeknight, it's just, it's like it's, I come home from work, and it's 11 p.m. I don't know why that is. No, I do know why that is. Because there, there's so much to do. You know, we have homework, and then dinner, and then there are dishes to wash. There's laundry to do, and laundry to fold. There are paper piles to straighten up. There are dust piles to scrape off the floor there there's stuff to do and then suddenly it's 11 o'clock and we never just sat down and rested why do we have a hard time doing that sometimes i will do that and and i'll just sit down and stop working and, and mary will say something very gracious like you you do that so much better than i do you'll sit down and just take a break and and she's not suggesting anything other than i wish i could do that too and i feel guilty because I'm not up doing something that needs to be done. Why do we do that? I know that you do it too. You, you have to. Please tell me that you do it too. We do that because every day we get up and, and in our worldly and fleshly ways, we have one goal in mind. And that's this. To show that you are better. That's your goal. You want to show that you're better than other people. You want to show, maybe even more, that you're better than you were yesterday. You want to show that you've improved. You want to show that you're worthy. You want to feel worthy. And so that's your driving goal day to day as you live your life. But the gospel is not that. The gospel is better. The gospel is that you have in Christ a new identity that because of the double credit of justification, you now not only are forgiven, but you are the righteousness of God himself. You are that. If God sees you as spotless and perfect in the gospel, and yet you don't buy it, you don't buy it. Jesus finished this already. Why don't you buy it? Why why is his not good enough for you? Why? Because you don't understand your justification. That's why. Justification is an explosion that should make you duck for cover and then stand up and say, that's really cool. And then live in it. It should be sort of like that Holiday Inn commercial. There should be some effect of this in, in your daily life. You know that Holiday Inn commercial where you know the guy he looks just like a normal business guy and, and there's some medical emergency and he responds to it on the spot. And he stops and he starts applying medical help to this person and he starts calling for a scalpel and, and surgical instruments and he's ready to operate. And somebody says, oh, are you a doctor? And he says, well, no, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn last night. Your justification should be, should be sort of like that for you. It, it, should, it should be sort of a, a sense of Someone says to you, how can you pray like that? Are you some sort of a saint? And your answer is, well, no, but I am justified by faith. I do have the righteousness of Christ. Somebody says to you, how can you forgive that person like that? I could never do that. How can you do that? Are you crazy? Well, no, but I am justified. Somebody says to you, how can you endure that hardship? You must be superhuman or something. Well, no. No, I'm not, but I am justified. And there should be some sense in which you can say, I know that I don't look like much. I know that there's not much to me, but I do know that I am justified by faith in the righteousness of Christ himself. You wake up every day with one goal in mind, which is to show that you're better. Which means that you think that you're somehow lacking. But everything that can possibly be yours is yours in Jesus. Everything you could possibly have that matters is yours in Jesus. What is rightfully yours, your sin, is credited to him. And what is rightfully his, his righteousness, is in the gospel... Credited to you. A friend of mine who, when I was becoming the RUF minister in Georgia of a small university there, was becoming the RUF ministry of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where Mary and I went to college. And there in, at Vanderbilt, there's a, a large naval ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training Corps. It's a very common thing for students at, at Vanderbilt to, to have a scholarship to be in the Naval ROTC and then to serve in the Navy, to be commissioned as an officer in the Navy for, for, I don't know, five or seven years or whatever they require for that after to pay for your education. And my friend had a student in his RUF ministry who was in Naval ROTC, and he did his uh, Navy ROTC deal for four years, and as, as, the, as his college career was kind of winding down, uh, the, uh, the, the circumstances of the military and, and the world was such that the, the United States military was beginning to pare back, and, and this sort of thing hadn't been done before. Uh, this student came to graduation, and the common practice was after graduation, you'd go to your Naval ROTC commissioning ceremony, which he did. And he went to his ceremony, and he, he had been told this was going to happen, and it did. He went to his ceremony, and he was simultaneously commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Navy with all the rights and privileges that come with being a United States military veteran, those things were all bestowed upon him simultaneously that and also honorably discharged from the United States Navy. His friends gave him a really hard time about that because they don't understand their justification. He had all the rights and privileges of being a United States military veteran and he was honorably discharged on the spot. All the credit was given to him. He didn't serve a minute. And yet all the credit was given to him and all the privileges and honors that come with it. In justification, you are simultaneously declared forgiven and, and declared righteous. You are free and confident in christ yes jesus died for you and in that you have great freedom but he also lived for you he lived for you and in him you are the righteousness of god hallelujah oh lord we pray that you would cause us to believe would you grant to us your spirit so that by faith we would believe that you not only died for our sins to forgive us, but you lived according to your own law to fulfill your law for us so that we might have your righteousness by faith and that we might live in the confidence that comes with that. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.